Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Today we bring you a special episode, the greatest races of 13-time Grand Prix winner David Coulthard. I'm delighted to say that David himself is joining us for this remote recording session. How are you, David? Welcome to the Autosport Podcast. Yeah, I'm great, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm actually glad it's greatest races rather than greatest crashes because I'm not sure uh, we'll be able to cover them all in the time because I've had a few of those. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you're more than welcome to throw any particularly spectacular shunts uh, shunts in there. And obviously, we are recording remotely because of uh, sadly the, the, the you know the terrible situation with the pandemic. How, how's it all going for you during during this tough time? Well, conscious, of course, as we all are, that a lot of people are going through tragedy and adversity. But uh, from a from a personal uh, health and well being point of view, then uh, family are all well, and we've been using the time as I think a lot of people in similar situations to you know, reappraise how we live, what we do, and what our loves and hates are. And uh, you know, there's, there's no question that motorsport is an itch that it still needs to be scratched in, in my family, not in as much for me to drive, but uh, to, to go and watch and to talk about it. And we have an 11 year old son who's ruining the fact that he's not getting to go karting. So you know, there's, a, there's a need for speed in the household. Now, my, my second guest is Autosport's chief editor, Kevin Turner. Now, Kev, the greatest racing series is basically something you created for Autosport. It's part of your obsession with, uh, with making lists on various topics, various drivers, various categories and races. Uh, can you just run us through the concept? Uh, also, also, I hope you're well as, as well before we, before we start diving into everything. I'm very much uh, looking forward to racing and getting underway. It really does sort of remind you what you're missing, doesn't it? But um, yeah, the, um, I, well, as you say, I love a good list and I also love motorsport history and you can get an awful lot of lists out of that. And the idea is to, is to pick out the, 
the 10 best drives of, of, of a given, you know, a, a given great or legend. So um, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to David about um, his race. I think he's very unfair with himself about the crashes. There weren't that many crashes. Come on. A few memorable ones, though, whether it was the, the catalyst for the initial big shunt and spa. I tried to be, blame Eddie Irvine for that. Out of, the, out of the mist, you just see my McLaren spearing towards the wall coming out of the source and, uh, you know, pit lanes and all sorts. But anyway, I was, it wasn't that I didn't care. It was just that I ran out of talent. It's, it's the cars at the back that are still ploughing into the shunt as it's ongoing. It's like, it's, they were still seem to be on full power. It's bizarre. I know. Well, that's the thing with competition. And anyone who's, who's driven, it doesn't have to be a Grand Prix car, but anyone who's driven on a racetrack, whether it's in a kart or touring car or uh, lower formula racing, you you can't see in the spray, of course. There's no window wipers and no amount of fog X and rain X is going to uh, take away from this blanket of spray. So there's a, an assumption where you, you go flat out on the streets because you assume everyone else is doing the same. And I remember having that very... Uh, situation back in was the German Grand Prix yeah it was it was around August wasn't it so I would have done Hockenheim so it was a wet warm-up and I remember disappearing off after into the the woods flat and then you know as a young racer doing my first very high speed wet circuit I lifted thinking well this is crazy I can't see where I'm going and then I thought well if I lift the guy behind me who's flat's going to run into me so I better go flat so I went flat got to about 200 miles an hour and thought, well, I can't see where I'm going, so I should lift. So I lifted again. So there was like this sort of good racing driver, bad racing driver conversation until you get to the first chicane and realize, well, look, you can't see where you're going, but you just got to go for it. Otherwise, you may as well park the car. Well, yeah, because that's, of course, what caused the big crash with Didier Peroni a few years beforehand that um, Alain Prost was going slowly and Peroni was flat chat, and that's what caused the accident, wasn't it? So I guess you've all got to be committed to the insanity almost i like the way we established that we weren't going to talk about crashes and then immediately went into talking about <laughs> crashes but that's that you know that, that that's all that's all good but let's uh let's go to to kev's first pick david for your for your greatest races which i mean starting at the beginning i think it's fair to say your first formula one win the 1995 portuguese grand prix at Estoril, which you win from pole position for williams actually you win sort of you you, you have to defend the lead twice from pole because of the massive red flag at the start and um, kev i wonder if we could just come come to you first uh why you why you chose this one apart from being the first Formula One win in David's career. Yeah, well, the first one's always special, as I'm sure David David will say. But it was also for a first Grand Prix win. It was it was pretty dominant. It was it was every every box tick really. I think everyone knew that the win was 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 coming. David had been a bit unlucky before that. Had already shown his speed. Uh, David did the job again from pole at the second start. Um, Marcus Schumacher overtook Damien Hill. Uh, David's teammate was fighting for the championship at that stage for second, and the two of them had a battle for for second. And, and really, DC just just checked out. He got the pole fastest lap, won the race. I don't really think anyone saw him all day, really. So uh, for a first Grand Prix win, it's pretty. That it doesn't get much more complete than that. Yeah, I think from my point of view, what maybe looked relatively calm from the outside, I remember very well. I was in a three-stop strategy, which basically meant you were sprinting between, you, you know, between your pit stops. You had to take the maximum out of the tire. There was no sort of. 99% trying to get the tyre to, to average its lap time out over a, a longer stint. And I remember on the very first stint um, that Michael was behind me. So I, I don't recall when he got in front of Damon, but he was quite close to me. And I remember thinking, if he, if he doesn't slow down, I, I just can't keep this pace. I, I, it was exhausting. Esteril was a really tiring racetrack anyway, 
with the very long right onto the start-finish straight, followed by a very fast right, first corner, into a flat and qualifying fast right, downhill into a long right-hand hairpin, back up the hill. So the right side of your neck took a hammering. And I'd, although I'd spent a lot of my early Williams days testing there, it was still an exhausting racetrack. And it, it, it took until Michael eventually started to lose some pace for me to start to breathe normally and find my comfort zone and, and, and be able to you know, concentrate on, on my stint. So it, again, it showed my relative inexperience because I was having to deal with that. I think it was race 21 in my career. Uh, but yeah, it was fantastic. And funnily enough, uh, my wife and I on the weekend, which will sound, um, well, sound however it sounds, I, I've got a picture of, of all my podiums that used to be in my office. And they came down a, a few years ago and went into boxes for some reason. And I came across them during lockdown. I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll put them in the gym for motivation for our 11-year-old, what, what podiums and Grand Prix look like. So I was going through and the, the win from Estoril, we put separate to the other victories and the other podiums on the wall in front of a pull-up bar in the gym because I, I, you know, I want, when I still try and do some pull-ups, I can see where it all started and I want that to serve as a kind of motivation to our, to our son as well, that, you know, you put in the, the hard yards, then maybe the results can come. That's, uh, that's very cool. <laughs> I do have one extra question on that race, actually, David. Um, so obviously at different points in that race, uh, Damon was, was in second, uh, kind of fitted between him and Michael. Um, obviously he was in a championship fight. Were you concerned that, team orders might come into play and they might try and swap you or was it something that you know frank and patrick had said beforehand no this is you know you, you just go for it get on with it sort of thing what, what was the situation around that the, the situation in truth is i was so wonderfully naive and motorsport was still so uh, so relatively seat of the pants there was no discussion you know, today that would be analysed to the nth degree. It would be discussed with managers, press officers, uh, you know, media advisors globally to the impact of what a decision like that would have on the health and well-being of all the team members. That, you know, you, there would be analysis to the point of people, you know, wanting to jump. Where there it was just get out and race. You know, we used to pick race strategies based on if you knew stopping a lap later was beneficial. If your teammate said, I'm, I'm going to stop on lap 20, you would say 21. And he'd go, well, I'll go 22. And you'd say, oh, I'll go 23. And then eventually the team would have to say, look, if we keep going, we'll, we'll run out of fuel or we'll run out of tires. So we, we have to call a point of where. So there, there wasn't as much science behind the science as you might imagine. Absolutely. Well, let's let's move on to to our next uh, our next pick, which is actually one of the the, the the brilliant things about having you on, David, is because Kev's given us two options here, and uh, we, we we're quite interested to see which one you would go for. And um, they're both from the nineteen ninety seven season. You're second at McLaren, and uh, both uh, the victories. Your first victory for McLaren uh, in Australia, the first of the season, and then later on in the season at Monza. Uh, Australia started fourth. There's that incident at the start with uh, Eddie Irvine, Jack Villeneuve, Johnny Herbert, Heinz Howard Frentzen sort of leads. You and uh, Michael Schumacher are chasing, chasing hard. The pit stop strategies play out differently. And then uh, in the end, you're in the lead when when Frentzen's brake fails and he has that spectacular off into the gravel and, and, and you're away and clearing the win. Whereas at Monza, totally different race, very much a, 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 a cagier affair. You've got that amazing launch off the line from sixth on the grid to run third. But then it's all about chasing hard 
uh, Frentzen uh, sort of get you get by him when he pits. Then it's the it comes down to a race between the mechanics between uh, uh, the Benetton mechanics for Lacey and uh, your McLaren mechanics. They get you out ahead and you go on to win. So which one of those, if you if you if you had to pick, if you can pick, would you opt for? Well, I think because of the definition of teamwork, then uh, as displayed in the pit stop, I would go for Monza because we came in on the same lap at the same time, as, as you mentioned, a lazy in front. And the McLaren team serves my car a little bit quicker and I get out in front of them. And John, uh, as anyone uh, who's had the opportunity to meet him, is a lovely man. And, you know, he always had a slightly mad reputation when he was was a Grand Prix driver, but not in terms of being uh, aggressive or unkind in the racetrack. He was actually one of the, 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 the nicest racers, you know, respectful racers. But when I say mad, if it was a little bit wet, he'd be out there on slicks. If there was snow falling, he'd be, yeah, let me out there. You know, he's just a bit unhinged in that respect. So I've always, when I've spoken to him about it, I always feel a bit guilty that I took away a, an opportunity for him to win the, you know, what would have been one of his, uh, his French-Italian mix, of course. That would have been a, a great, great win for him. But it was a great display of teamwork and maybe slightly uh, more of a, a real race than what happened in Australia because, as you said, Frentzen burned out his brakes, which, I, I, if I recall correctly, the Williams was pretty dominant at that time and there was no need for him to be pushing that hard. And, I, and if he was teammates with Villeneuve at the time, I remember uh, Jack talking about the, the, the brakes were really on edge and it's a hard-breaking circuit, Melbourne. So I just... You know, it's one of those things that you can't really understand why if you've got a big lead and you know you're marginal in breaks, why you don't take that into account. Or maybe Heinz Harald was, but he just got unlucky. Indeed, it's interesting. It's interesting that you you went for for Monza there because Kev, I know we had, we were having a chat as we were preparing for this, and it's it's one of those races where not a lot happened in terms of on track overtaking, but it was still a a close you know a close fight for the win, and, and the overtaking happened in the pit stops. So I think Autosport at the time was sort of like it's a great great drive, and and I'm sure thrilling for the drivers involved, but perhaps for the fans, one of those ones that they just it just wasn't quite the the overtaking fest that they might have been looking for. Yeah, I agree with that. Sorry, Kevin, I agree that for the fans, it wouldn't be great. But again, anyone who's driven Monza or any of these high-speed circuits will completely relate to low downforce coming through the second Lesmo, the the car dancing and sliding and trying desperately not to scrub any speed because of the long run down to Ascari and, you know, likewise in Parabolica. It actually takes quite a lot of energy and, and mental anguish to drive a circuit like that to get it right because it's it's the closest we get to an oval and on an oval of course if they have a lift mid corner they're they're you know it takes them two three laps to wind back up to speed again so it's kind of like that there whereas if you're on a regular circuit make a mistake and breaking at the chicane you you bank that light that that time loss and then you're back on it again from the next corner uh, there is actually one one memory of that on, on that david is you had what in those cars would look like an enormous moment at Biscari about halfway through the race. I think it was after Frenson had pitted and you and Jean were absolutely on it, obviously, to jump. Uh, and it was a sort of moment that you, normally when an F1 car gets that sideways, it's, it's as it heads off into the boonies. Um, but you caught it. Was that a moment that you thought, Christ, buddy, or were you just so in the zone that it was dealt with and gone and you were just pressing on with the race? I remember it well, because uh, if you recall 95 going to the grid, I, I did something similar, but in that case, I didn't catch it and spun into the gravel. So I'd had the experience from a couple of years. And again, it's just you're on the edge of adhesion through there. And occasionally it, it gets a little bit 
sideways. So that was as big an opposite lock you're going to get in a Grand Prix car before binning it. And uh, on that day, fate decided that, you know, once going off on that corner was enough. <laughs> and the one other thing about that race, which actually links quite nicely to the next uh, race that we'll talk about, is your start. You went through a period of time in particular where your starts were unbelievable. There's one at San Marino the year before where you grabbed the lead from the second row. And this one, you went from sixth to third. So did you always was, did you always think that starts were a strength? Was that going back into the junior days? Um, and what did you have a particular approach that, that meant you were better at it than other people? Yeah, I always felt confident in starts right from uh, the, the first year in cars and Formula Ford. And I was never a particularly strong qualifier, but, you know, in Formula 3 season 91, was, was never really, I don't really recall having many front rows, but it didn't matter. I always gained places at the start. And I think a lot of people had a, various theories on how to start a race car, which involved slipping clutches and, you know, RPM to the exact 50 RPM and all that sort of stuff. I worked on the simple basis, limit the amount of devices that you're trying to control at any given time. So I would get the vehicle going, get the clutch out, and then control the wheel spin if there was any thereafter. So I was dealing with one thing rather than trying to slip clutches and trying to be a scientist and work out the difference in the audio between what's clutch slip and what's wheel slip at the, at the road. And um, yeah, so uh, launches were always a, a strength and, a, and, and had great confidence. So it always came as a, a big surprise if I didn't make a good start because I was convinced I would outstart anyone. Well, and as, as Kev said, it is a, is a good start at our next pick, which is the 1999 Belgian Grand Prix at Spa that leads into, first of all, the uh, flashpoint at the very start of the race and then ultimately uh, goes on to another one of your victories. You started second alongside your teammate, Mika Hakkinen. There's a clash at turn one. Which, uh, which becomes a sort of talking point, particularly post-race, but it's a, you know, it's a dominant drive from yourself, David. You go on to win by over 10 seconds over Mika Hakkinen. So what, what are your memories, first of all, of the incident and then the drive and all the drama that followed? Yeah, I don't actually recall if I was on the inside or the outside. I assume I was on his inside at the source, but we did touch slightly. He kind of held on to it a bit too long and he sort of met in the middle, but you left him enough room on the inside, so you got away with a kiss rather than a rather more embarrassing moment when we go through to austria um a couple of years later that's where i touched his rear and spun him around so it was always going to be close at, at first corners but i remember having that that little contact um thank you for reminding me i was on the outside and then i just felt in in a zone a little bit like the esterol win 95 and it just i don't recall any mistakes I just, and I'd actually been unwell the night before the race. I'd, I'd slept very poorly because of uh, some sort of irritating cough and um, to the point where I'd actually was coughing up a little bit of blood during the night. So it, it was a great uh, experience, life experience for me in terms of realizing that you don't always need to be in the best physical shape to give one of the best performances because the mind controls the body and not the other way. So if you allow your mind to tell you that, oh, I'm too sick to do this and I'm too sick to do that, which is why whenever I see racing drivers hand in a sick note because they've had an upset tummy and they can't, you know, they're two steps from the toilet, get in the car and let adrenaline take over and, and, and you know, get on with the job in hand. It's amazing how fear and adrenaline will focus your mind and shut down other, other systems. So... Uh, yeah, so that, I was particularly proud of that victory. Mika clearly wasn't very happy. And I remember uh, Mark Slade, his engineer, who's at Renault, I still I believe, um, 
saying to myself and my engineer that if they lose the world championship, it'll be my fault. And I, I, I seem to remember thinking at the time, well, my sole purpose wasn't as a support man to Mika's championship. You know, part of winning a championship is beating your teammate. And, you know, clearly he had the, the, the speed and the skills over the course of the season that I didn't have. Um, but it just seemed a little bit selfish of them to take that point of view and what I think was a great victory. And if, if he'd won by 10 seconds, everyone would have been waxing lyrical about the great spy and what a great drive and, you know, his teammate limped home 10 seconds behind. Yeah, it seemed a bit strange because your relationship with Mika outwardly, you always seem to be, well, certainly more convivial than some teammate combinations we've seen over the years. But yeah, that did seem to be like the reporting around the time was very much that he had toys out of the pram, really. But I wonder if it was also due to the frustrations of the points that the, the team and he had already thrown away earlier in the year. Because obviously Schumacher had broken his leg at that point. You're up against Eddie Irvine. And really, his combination should have had him quite nicely tucked up by them. But there are a lot of points gone begging. I presume Mika just thought that was a few more. But he should have driven faster. <laughs> yeah, no, I, absolutely. There's no question that reliability was our weak spot for a large part of our pairing together. And uh, that cost us a lot of points, a lot of victories and opportunities. But that is part of motor racing. And, you know, if you start with the premise that life isn't fair and, and not everybody gets what they, they want or they deserve, then, you know, in sport, you just have to accept what comes to you. You know, today, Formula One is incredibly reliable. The, these guys finish most of the Grand Prix where we fully expected not to finish maybe, you know, 30, 40% of the races. <laughs> it was crazy, really. David, coming on to uh, the, the next pick that Kev's got on his greatest list, uh, greatest races list here for you. Uh, it's one, actually, that if you were just looking at the history books on the face of it, you might you might not see because it's the 2000 Brazilian Grand Prix in Lagos. You overcome a mechanical uh, mechanical trouble, uh, but sadly get disqualified after the race. So it's sort of, it's, it, there's different strategies at play. Ferrari are two-stopping. The McLarens, you guys are one-stopping, you and Mika. But, uh, reliability strikes both of you because uh, Hakkinen has to retire with an engine problem and then you get uh, you get stuck with your gearbox. I think apparently you couldn't select any gears below fourth and yet you still came back to finish second before sadly that front wing, there was a front wing front wing infringement that takes you out of the reckoning. So what was your memories of that race and, and what was going on with the gearbox? Yeah, well, exactly that. Uh, you know, worked out that clearly there was an issue. I think I'd lost an in-between in gear so I could, so I, d- I didn't actually recall it was uh, in the case of what you've just told me, then uh, that would have been third gear that I lost. So to get to second, of course, you've got to go through the gear, which is not, not working. And then I make the decision, work out that it's probably best if I'm going to finish the race, not to run the risk of passing through a damaged gear uh, and, and, you know, maybe make it more terminal than it was. So I think those, those sort of races are ones where you've got the right level of experience to give information to the team, but work out in, in your own mind what you need to do. And I think that's a key thing. You know, when you, of course, we always look to our teams to tell me what to do, what settings to reset. But actually, you've, you've got to be a bit of an armchair engineer as well. When, when, when something clearly isn't working, there's no point keep trying it, keep trying it, keep trying it because it's not working. You know, you've got to find another strategy. Um, so from that point of view, and yeah, I think by the time I landed in London the next morning, I found out then uh, that I'd been disqualified. I think the front wing had got damaged somewhere on a curb or it was too low and we got kicked out. And again, when you reflect on your career, which I don't do very often, but when we have opportunities like this, 
there's lots of little sillies, whether it was myself or whether it was the team or whether it was just the racing guards that decided when you're leading a race, um, the engine blows up. You know, things like that, where you think, ah, you know, that was one that was in the bag. But that is part and, and has always been part of the technical challenge of, of this, you know, engineering sport. Is that a philosophy that you had from the moment you arrived in F1 or is that something that you sort of grew to accept better the longer you were there? I think that the big standout moments of getting into car racing was the shock of how much hanging around there was in comparison to karting. And so it takes you a few years in the lower formulas to adapt to the fact that you do one qualifying and one race and then go home all over the world. And then by the time you get to Formula One, and in my case, I was so lucky to be a test driver for three years because I, I tested so many different things. And, and you know, I've literally blown up or not personally, but I've been behind the wheel when gearboxes have blown up and engines have blown up and wings have fallen off and uprights have broken. I've had all these rich life experiences to know what it feels like in failure. So then, and, and during my time in Formula One, very often we'd go to the first Grand Prix never having completed a Grand Prix distance. You just went there with the hope and faith and 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 desire that you would suddenly see the checkered flag and you know 98 melbourne when i moved over from Ica was a perfect example of that we couldn't do more than 20 laps in pre-season testing so we arrived there going you know on the grid sunday morning and everyone's giving each other a sort of good luck look of well is it going to stop on lap 19 or is it going to stop on lap 22 and then of course it keeps going it keeps going and you get to the finish and the debrief is uh, well how did that happen <laughs> The next pick that uh, Kev has selected for you, um, uh, quite quite an interesting and, and dramatic one, the 2000 Spanish Grand Prix. David, you race from fourth to second for McLaren, but it's it's a particularly uh, important one in terms of your life and your career because obviously it becomes it comes very sadly after the plane crash that you were involved in uh, and, and survived a few days before. I mean, you got to the finish with, with injured ribs. It was obviously a, a difficult race for you. So I wondered if you could just talk us through your memories of that time and, and, and the race itself. Well, of course, the, the tragedy of the pilots losing their life was the, the, the overriding discussion and, and thought um, in the, the days leading up to the Grand Prix with some people questioning whether I should race or not out of respect to the family. But I'd actually uh, I'd spoken to one of the, the, the pilot's fathers who uh, told me that his, his son had told him that I was on the aircraft. It was not a regular plane that I used, so I, I literally said hello to the pilots, and then sadly, an hour or so later, the, the crash happened and they lost their lives. But he told his father, he was a big motorsport fan, and his father was absolutely clear in his mind that out of, uh, you know, the, the show goes on, the race goes on. You, you know, that's what, in his mind, his, his son would have wanted. So that, in, as far as I was concerned, was the beginning and end of any conversation as to whether it was morally right or not and of course i had to do that evening a little soul searching as to whether i ever wanted to fly again because you know having walked away from that wreckage it was a fairly shocking experience not so much at the moment but when i sort of got home that evening and had a shiver down my spine you know that kind of shiver you get sometimes and you think oh someone you know the expression would be someone's walked over your grave I had that kind of moment and and that was the right do I want to race the answer was yes do I want to race this weekend the answer was yes so uh, the support system that was McLaren and Ron Dennis didn't always show its its cuddly signed on the outside but uh, actually as we speak and record this it's Ron Dennis's it's birthday today and Ron actually has got a huge heart and, and it's, it's very 
supportive of his team, whether it's the drivers or any team personnel when there's adversity. And, and that sort of system kicked into place in terms of preparation ahead of getting to the race and allowing me to, to focus on driving. And in the end, uh, you know, the right person won, the, won that Grand Prix and I was very happy to you know, be able to bring the car home in second and, and move on from it. Um, I remember Sid Watkins uh, giving me an injection um, and, and, and I never quite knew whether he was joking or not, but he, he gave me this injection for the pain in my ribs and made some sort of comment about it being some sort of horse tranquilizer and that the government even sure that, that no, one, uh, no one came for a urine sample after the race. And of course, you've got just enough doubt behind his great humor that he had to think, well, he wouldn't do that, surely, as a chief medical officer. But uh, anyway, it was, it was obviously just some sort of pain painkiller. But it, it actually, the trophy, all my uh, McLaren trophies are replicas, could run, kept all the originals. And part of the contract, Meek and I would get replicas made. The only original trophy I have from my McLaren years is that second place steering wheel, which Ron couldn't break his tradition of never giving the driver the real trophy but what he did do was hand it to my then partner and say I'm giving it to her I won't give it to you and of course you know that that relationship came and went but I still have the trophy and it's one of only three trophies I have at home in our apartment everything else is in the museum in Scotland and uh, it's a reminder so it's not a winning trophy but it, it's, a, it's a reminder of a a life-changing experience. Mika Hakkinen goes on to win uh, for McLaren after the Ferrari pit stop goes wrong for, for Michael Schumacher. A terrifically significant race in David's career, but what, you know, was it particularly that that put it on the list? I, I would, I would it, 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 was, it was, to be honest. I mean, I, I know I contradict myself sometimes because I, I tend to try and take the, the emotional part out of some of these choices and try and go for what were the best drives by you know, whoever we're talking about. It is also a human sport, um, so there's always an emotional factor as well. Yeah, we talked about this on the, yeah, with the Nicky Lauda one, yeah, the 1976 Italian Grand Prix coming back so soon after his crash. It's, it's that kind of human story. And I think you've got to, you know, you've got to give that some uh, yeah, credit and, and, and remember those days as well. Um, so, yeah, to come through, uh, come through the injury and obviously the, you know, the, you know, the mental challenge of those few days, I thought well, you made, it, made it worthy of, of the list, even if the race itself wasn't you know, perhaps as memorable as some of the other ones that we're, we're talking about. Indeed. Well, the next one um, is uh, is tremendously memorable for first of all for David for you for you for you being involved in it and the race win that you get and for Kevin and I because we've recently just launched another Autosport podcast series which is called uh, Race of My Life which picks up from uh, the feature that ran in Autosport magazine for many many years we're continuing it online now and we go around we ask uh, famous drivers from from all across motorsport uh, Formula One all, all categories to pick their the race of their lives and your pick David was the 2000 French Grand Prix at Manicourt which is infamous for your superb swearing and gestures uh, to Michael Schumacher when uh, when when you're fighting for the lead, um, but yeah, it's, so yeah, so we, we've covered this uh, in depth on that on that other podcast. So it's it's well fresh in my mind, which is great for this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it because it's a particularly uh, particularly feisty driving from yourself and Michael Schumacher. You know, you start on the on the front row together, but he comes across at you at the start. Rubens Barrichello gets by. You have to get by Barrichello, and then comes that that clash at the Adelaide hairpin. There's a fantastic moment where uh, you can't see it sort of live on the replay 
replay shots, but when that so sorry on the live shots of the TV, but when the replay comes in the slow motion, you can see that as he's forced you to the edge of the track towards the curb and you're accelerating away from the corner, you get in two different bits of swearing at him, which I just <laughs> personally as a, as a fan of swearing, I thought that was superb, and to be able to do that at however many mile an hour you were going at was was fantastic. And then uh, and then you do get by and you go on to win the race. So what was what what's your thoughts on on that that race? Well, of course, we, we should say it's not big and it's not clever, is it, to use profanity and, 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 and bad sign language. But, it, but, uh, I, but I did apologise at the time. And it was just pure emotion coming through because Michael was a very hard competitor. And, you know, in some cases, I don't think he needed to be so hard because he was good enough and quick enough to, to not have to give you that little extra squeeze. And he gave me, I felt uh, he was you know, unreasonably uh, robust on the way to the first corner. And that's where I lost the place to Rumens. And that just sort of triggered off what was already a fairly traumatic, and maybe traumatic is not the right word, but quite a, a full-on weekend in qualifying. Mika and I were jumping in and out of each other's cars because, you know, he'd, he had a problem with his car, then jumped in the T car. Then I had a problem with my car and had to jump in his car because they'd fixed his car, but he was out in the T car. So I actually qualified in his car. Um, and then I think I went back, and Kevin, you might recall better with all your statistical knowledge, pretty sure I went back, because you weren't held to having to race the car you qualified. So I think I went back to my race car for the race. So the fact that I was able to jump in Mika's car, still out qualifying, I just felt kind of ownership of, of the Magna Cura racetrack and was convinced I was going to win that race. So when he, when Michael had the audacity to get in the way of, of my plan, it, it got me really fired up. And, and whilst I was having to battle with him, of course, Mika was pretty close behind, ready to pick up the pieces if I made a mistake. And yeah, so Michael gave me a bit of a squeeze the first attempt, which was always going to be long chalk trying to go around the outside. And then, frankly, the, when I eventually did pass him, it, if he'd turned in, I probably, you know, we probably would have both crashed. So it was one of those scenarios where you, ha- you needed a compliant person to allow you past. And Michael wouldn't always be compliant. But I think I, I'd obviously harangued him enough. <laughs> Maybe he'd seen this, my gestures from the car that he decided that, you know, that Scotsman's mentally unstable today. I think I should just give him some space. And I went on to win the Grand Prix. So that, that's why I felt it was such a great victory because... I had to show fighting spirit against one of the, the biggest fighters in the sport. And actually, once you, I think Mark had to give you room because by the time he actually realised and turned in, you were basically there. Like, he couldn't really do anything about it because you weren't as close as um, you had been on, on the, the previous occasion. So it was almost like he, he wasn't expecting an attack on that particular lap, which is probably why you were able to, to pull it off because by the time you realised what was happening, you, you were already there. Yeah, in truth, I probably missed my breaking point and I'd, I was trying to avoid him and it turned into an overtake. But hey, you've got to, you've got to take what, what you can. Come on to the next uh, next race on the list, which I think is actually what Kev would have as your race of my life, if, if that's how it worked, which obviously it isn't. Uh, but it's the, t- it's, the, it's the 2001 Brazilian Grand Prix at Interlagos where you go from fifth to first for McLaren. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a tremendously famous race list for many reasons. There's Juan Pablo Montoya and his muscly pass on, on Michael Schumacher and then the your charge late on in the rain Schumacher the, the you know the the accomplished rainmeister has a spin you know he keeps going gets going and then there's that incredible pass three abreast into turn one where you and Michael go either side of Tarso Marquez in the Minardi um 
is that your equivalent of Mika Hakkinen's uh, 2000 spa move either side of Zonta? What do you reckon? Yeah, I think it may, it may be. Obviously, the, the Mika one was was an iconic image that will we'll live with any motorsports fan because of the speed and, and decision-making that the drivers had to make. Um, clearly, where I had the pass going what the inside of the Minardi and Michael going the outside, it's into a braking zone, so you know not quite so visually spectacular. But the significance of that, yeah, absolutely, is the fact that it was tricky conditions. Normally, you would earmark those for, for Michael. But I, I, I think I drove well, situation came to me, and I was able to, to come through and get the victory. And I, I think, was it, which year did uh, Fisichella get the win there when I was leading, but then pitted just before the big crash uh, with Weber? 2003. Oh, so that was after. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that was one that, I, again, I felt was my victory. But because we pitted before the, the 75% rule, I went from leading to, to, to not having the Grand Prix, which was tremendously frustrating. I think I ended up, you know, in one of the minor placings and um, because of those crashes. So it was, a, again, the coming back to what I mentioned about strategy and conversations and Estoril, you asked about, was it a team discussion about Damon um, back in my first win in 95? Normally speaking in strategy, you would never pit one or two laps before 75% distance, just in case there's a safety, a red flag. But amazingly, even though I was controlling that race, we pitted one or two laps before the 75% distance. And then there was the crashing and, you know, other people hadn't pitted and I ended up out of position. And then they did the callback, countback on on the race result and I I didn't get the win. So that was a strategic error on the team on that particular day. I think the, um, the one of the reasons I put the 2001 um, Brazilian race so high up is because um, if I might be annoyed on your behalf, David, everyone after that race was banging on about Montoya with his move at the first corner, which I think everyone had been waiting for because obviously Chewie had been doing it to other people for ages. And I think it was quite refreshing that this guy from America had come in and, and done it. So everyone got really excited about that. Um, and rather, I thought, missed the point that you'd overtaken Schumacher in the wet to win a Grand Prix, which... The number of people that have done that did that over the years was pretty small, so I always thought that was a, that was a little bit unfair. But maybe that was uh, maybe that was just the sort of spectator's perspective on that. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I think it was a good pass, and yeah, you know, I'm. I think uh, hopefully uh, anyone who knows me would see see things the way I do in terms of you know, I I uh, one of the first to acknowledge I was not the best racing driver, and I certainly wasn't as complete a driver as Michael and Mika and many, many others. But, uh, you know, I, I, when I've had the opportunity and when I've been on form and to, to then be able to compete with those guys at that level, those are the moments of life achievement for me. You know, I always wanted to race at the highest level and find out how good I was. And I'm comfortable in my own skin to know that I wasn't as good as them. But that doesn't mean they weren't beatable on certain days. So, you know, you've got to have that belief and you've got to always aspire to be the very best you can. And, you know, sometimes maybe they were slightly off form, but certainly I was on form those days. And I think also, do you think it's fair to say, I don't want to put words in your mouth really, but that you were one of the best overtakers on the grid as well during your career. I mean, we've not even talked about your move around the outside of Barrichello at Stowe on your way to win the British Grand Prix in 2000. I, you, you you were always quite combative. If you had, yeah, you know, if you were in the ballpark, you'd make a move happen. You didn't seem to be someone that would just sort of cruise around. And I, I remember getting very frustrated with Kimi Räikkönen following Max Verstappen in Spain a few years ago. And he's like, he just didn't seem to want to make anything happen. But you, you never seem to be that sort of driver. Is, is that fair? 
Yeah, I think that growing up through karting, where you had to race for your positions, and, and this is where, you know, not to be unproven because I can't live my life again, but I never qualified a car uh, or qualified. On, I did two or three European kart races, and then the first time I ever really qualified was in Formula Ford in 1989. So the majority of my schooling was in racing, racing through the heats. You know, you started at the beginning, at the middle, at the back, and at the front. So uh, whereas European carters or South American carters come up through qualifying, and they sometimes are not very good at racing because they haven't, if they've been brilliantly talented, they spend all their life at the front. <laughs> you know, they never do any racing. <laughs> and David, I wondered, what, what, you know, while just as Kev mentioned that, what what are your thoughts on the the British Grand Prix of two thousand? Because that is another one that, that that that's in the mix there for your for your greatest races. It was, of course, that that famous race where the British Grand Prix was in April, and everyone just remembers the rain and the the the, the muddy car parks. But how about you? You know, winning in front of your home fans there. Yeah, it was of course fantastic. Silverstone was a track that I'd gone to since a little. I was a little boy, not through motor racing or, or car racing, but through karting because long circuit karting was very popular, sort of in the eighties. Uh, so I'd camped at Silverstone. I'd never been to a Grand Prix actually until the first time I was racing in support race in Opel Lotus in 1990. But I'd obviously watched Formula One and and you know waited for Autosport magazine. I think it didn't arrive in Scotland until the Thursday or Friday. You know, it wasn't quite. You know, the pace of delivery wasn't quite so, as good. But the, you know, that was my my connection to the world of motorsport and and my my window to to the opportunity to be a professional racer. So to win at the British Grand Prix, of course, was fantastic. I never really felt strong at Silverstone you know I was obviously in a good enough position with the car and the team and, and, and circumstance to win it a couple of times arguably 95 I should have won as well because I was leading when I was speeding in the pit lane and that allowed I got a drive-through penalty and allowed Johnny to win the race not that I begrudge him the victory because you know Johnny was was you know a great driver and and overcame an amazing adversity with uh, his Formula 3000 accident. But that was another one that had kind of slipped away. Otherwise, it could have been a hat-trick of, of victories at Silverstone. Absolutely. Well, Kev, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that 2000 British Grand Prix? Why would you include that? Well, why have you got that on the list? Rubens, it was a very, very minor, I mean, it was described as an error in some of the reports, but I'm not sure I'd even call it that. It was just ever so slightly offline uh, through Beckett's and coming out onto Hangar Straight. So it wasn't like... David could just accelerate past him because he, you know, he'd gone off the road. It was he still had a lot to do when he got to the braking zone and going around the outside, um, and I guess had to trust Rubens quite a lot as well. Um, but I know David obviously you raced against Rubens many, many times before you even got to one, so presumably you were fairly confident that once you'd, you'd got the car there, he wouldn't do anything silly. Yeah, I, th- I think again, uh, having raced against Rubens and Opel Lotus from the three from the three thousand. I would say his strength and his his career path to Formula One was his qualifying speed and, and, and his speed rather than his racing. So I always felt pretty confident that put him under a bit of pressure, uh, he'd back out of it. Uh, and then, of course, you, you sort of controlled the, the, the race from, from there. And it felt like you perhaps, whereas your other um, British Grand Prix success, lots of other sort of things happened. That one, like you went out and won it, if you, if you see what I mean. So put that one on the list. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. No, that was uh, more about racing the the situation at the time where the other one was maybe slightly more fortunate. When that That's why whenever I've uh, had the opportunity to stand on the podium with my teammate beside me and, you know, someone like Michael, then you know you've had a pretty good day in the office because you've beaten your teammate. And I always had, I think, good good teammates. 
and uh, clearly Michael was the benchmark through the period when I was racing. Indeed, well, the, ne- the next one on the list is, is is one of those. It's the 2002 Monaco Grand Prix, your second Monaco Grand Prix win, David. Um, you, you you take the lead off Juan Pablo Montoya at Turn One into Sandovot there, uh, but it's a it's a it's a it's a rare defeat on the dominant 2002 Ferrari, and that Schumacher's uh, a, a, a sweep to his uh, to his fifth title. So yeah, what are your memories of that race? Did I win Monaco 2000 and 2002, and I was in pole 2001? Yeah, and you had the stool uh, and then the, the stuck behind Benalde yeah. in the middle. In uh, 2002, I didn't manage to, to get uh, the, the pole. I was, as you say, second to Montoya. But again, I was pretty confident I could out-launch him. And I think we had launch control in those days. So it, a lot of it was automated, but you still had to you know, finesse and work with it as a driver to, to get it so you got as good a launch as the system would allow you. So I remember even with the button on the steering wheel, figuring out with my engineer that if, you know, if button sort of engages and disengages, well, I wanted to reduce the, the amount of movement from engagement to disengagement. So we, we moved the position of the button within the housing of the steering wheel on my car. I don't believe we, we spoke to Mika's engineers about it. So, so it was literally just engaging when my thumb covered it. The millisecond I released the pressure with my finger, the system you know, launched and you were off. But I, I just saw that as a looking for every single little detail of how do you get the perfect start. That race was won in testing in Paul Ricard. I figured out that if I could get a tire that lasted as far as the horseshoe at Paul Ricard, that in terms of the amount of energy you put into the tire at Paul Ricard was obviously a lot higher than you would in Monaco. So a lot of drivers were looking at lap time at the end of the lap to decide on the tire. And I figured out with my engineers, it doesn't matter what lap time we're doing at Paul Ricard. What matters is, you know, how, how the grip, how, where we are at that point at the horseshoe, which was probably about three quarters of the lap. And if we were quicker at that point and the tires had hung on to that point, then that was the tire that I wanted to take to Monaco for, for, uh, for the qualifying tire. And it was, again, just, you know, the experience and confidence and, and a feeling of, you know, confidence and street circuits that that proved to be a good decision i guess i was disappointed not to get the pole but the graining was brutal uh, really really horrible which we expected because we knew the tire was was uh, you know suboptimal to use a ron expression but once you get through the graining you then got down to a more stable block of, of rubber and i knew that if i could get through that graining ahead of the pit stop i'd be fine and then once it started to clean up, I managed to get enough of a gap before my, my pit stop and then just control the pace thereafter. There's a couple of places where you can get it wrong in Monaco. The main one being really uh, entering the chicane because you're coming slightly light over the braking uh, outside the, 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 the uh, yacht club. But if you everywhere else, you can drive 95% on the brakes into Sandevoort, into Casino Square, into Mirabeau, uh, and still do a good lap time with 95% braking. On someone like a Monza, that wouldn't work. You, you would lose half a second a lap. Monaco, just because the nature of the track, you're never, ever 100%. Because if you are, you're, you know, you're going to be touching the barrier. So you, you have to drive a street circuit with a different mentality. I think that one should climb up the list because it's a great example of attention to detail then as well. So with the, with the button and the tyres, it's kind of everything coming together, isn't it? You've done, you've done a lot of the hard work before you've even... Uh, sort of sat on the grid which I guess is kind of a what what 
everyone's aiming to do. That's what Lewis and Mercedes have done so brilliantly, isn't it, over the last few years? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, now we speak about it, uh, you take it for granted when you're doing it because that's your job. You know, that's why I I joke about it now with Alex Wurtz and um, you know the, the other testers that were involved with McLaren over the years because I I never wanted them to test. <laughs> I, I always wanted to test. One, because I didn't want them to show how good they were. And two, I wanted to try and influence the direction of the, the tyre or the, the car development to try and get an advantage from my, over my teammate. Because I couldn't match him at outright speed. So I had to find other ways. So I put in the hard yards. And that's why when I eventually did retire, it was with no regret because I, I tried everything. I tried my best. There's none of those slightly well was his heart in it did he really leave no stone unturned you know I, I i know i did so therefore you can walk away with a clear conscience indeed well let, let's come on to the to the next race on the list which i think is uh, an example of you of you not giving up uh, very well here it's the 2003 australian grand prix it's your final f1 win david but um it's uh it's one of those just incredible races that it's everything seems to happen uh you know a wet to dry thriller but you were you were last at the end of lap two and, and you come through the field the guys in front of you every uh, montoya Raikkonen, and schumacher they all seem to lose time at various stages to mistakes but you 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 you, you don't you come to come through the field okay it's montoya goes off late on get past and get into the to claim the win but you know what are your memories of that of that crazy event yeah i remember not being as happy because i i I wasn't performing well at that that phase i for whatever reason couldn't you know i was struggling to to match kimi and outright pace and understand how to get the car to to work for me so i hadn't qualified well uh the the race i I remember before the race norbert haug who was the motorsports boss for mercedes was an outright racer. He loved racing, you know, a little in the Frank Williams sense of it. Uh, former journalist, of course, so, you know, great historian uh, as well in terms of knowing the history of the sport. But I remember him coming to me before the race and, and you know, sort of giving me one of those big bear hugs that Norbert would do and saying that you can still win this. And I remember, you know, when you get yourself in a slightly negative place and you're listening to it and you want to take the positive, but in the, behind behind those those comments i'm thinking god i'm still pissed off that i hadn't got more out of the car and qualifying and i'm in this on the back foot and this is not where i should be but of course any negativity goes out of your mind when the race starts because you're an adrenaline fueled focus as a racer and you're duty bound to your own honor and respect to the team to do the best you can and the race unfolded the different scenarios and, and changing conditions and it played into to my hands and i didn't make any big mistakes I wouldn't say it was my best weekend I remember saying to Ron Dennis on the podium you know that I I was disappointed even in victory and I remember him him sort of giving it get over it you've just won the race (laughs) but uh, I think I was always pretty hard on myself in in terms of looking for even if I hadn't won if I felt I delivered the best of my ability I could accept that and I, I didn't feel I was delivering at the best of my ability at that time for whatever reason. So that slightly tainted what should be, uh, well, what was ultimately a Grand Prix victory. That, that's very interesting, actually, because um, speaking to Jackie Stewart about his, he picked a race he didn't win. He wasn't even on the podium in the race that he picked as his number one. And he made that very point, which was, yeah, you can drive a race and know that you didn't do perhaps the best job and win because of circumstances or the car. And then you might have another day where you haven't really got a chance, but you drive absolutely the best race that you can do and finish fourth or sixth or something. 
um, which is why it's so good to be able to speak to, to you guys about this. Do you tell me this actually, do, just to throw it back at you, because I'm always, I, I find writing difficult and I have to really be into something to, to read at length. So I always admire people who can write and, and do research and everything. So do you find that as well when you're creating content? That some days it just flows off your fingertips and other days it feels like, God, I wish I, I wish I had another job. Adrenaline gets you through and I find the same with writing race reports, you know, particularly for in, in, the, in the current era for the website. That's really sometimes where you do your best work when you're under pressure, but obviously completely different typing away at a laptop to driving at uh, several hundred miles an hour there. That's what I love about sport and, and in your business. You, there is a point where you go to press or, or, or it has to be, you know, especially with online uh, today, you, you've got to get your story up there factually checked and relevant ahead of your competition. So there, that pressure focuses the mind. And that's, that's irrelevant whether you're driving a race car, landing an aircraft or delivering a, you know, a, a news story. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this podcast has been brilliant because I didn't know that Norbert, ha- Norbert Haug used to be a journalist. So there, there's, ho- there's, there's hope for us yet, Kev. We might end up running a motorsport program. This could be brilliant. <laughs> Let's come on to um, to, to the last the last sort of uh, actually it's two events again, David. We're going to bring you in here if that's okay. It's sort of um, it's uh, uh, two races from the sort of third act, you might say, from your Formula One career when you're with uh, when you're with, with Red Bull. Now, Kev's put forward two suggestions, uh, which is the 2005 Australian Grand Prix where you scored points on your Red Bull debut, or the 2006 Monaco Grand Prix, which is your first uh, Red Bull podium. So, which of the two? Are there any? Is there anyone jumping out immediately? There is, I mean, there is the 2008 Montreal, the Canadian Grand Prix behind the BMW Salbers where you, you finish on the podium as well. I didn't feel that I particularly drove that well or, or something stand out in that Melbourne race where, where I think we finished fourth for Red Bull. But I do recall um, it, it's, life is a, is a wonderful learning experience and, and how different teams operate and clearly having come from McLaren to what was Jaguar and then rebranded as Red Bull. I, the, the different people have different procedures and I'd already decided that I wouldn't sign for Jaguar but when Jaguar became Red Bull then that completely changed you know when I saw Christian and Dietrich and understood that this could be more than what, what the Jaguar period was you know Jaguar was very much you know four developments a year people going out to Detroit to present to the board and it was just all very corporate and not at all sort of racy every race looked for performance so what uh, I realized at that first Grand Prix with a lot of the people still left over from the, the, um, the Jaguar scenario was we did all the practice, felt the car was running quite well on those tires, went out to qualify and the car felt different. And I remember coming in afterwards and being a bit disappointed and asking the engineers, well, look, something's changed. I understand change of climatic conditions and different sets of tires. And they're like, no, no, everything's the same, everything's the same, everything's the same. Anyway, long story short, Everything was the same apart from they changed the entire nose and front wing assembly because in their mind, they were both identical. Well, in the world of engineering, even in Formula One engineering, there's tolerances. Otherwise, things don't fit together. And tolerances, if you've got all the tolerances working to the lower end of the variation, you get the the sweet wing. It's a bit like an engine. Why does one engine produce more power than another? Every tolerance is at the minimum it can be and another one will be at the upper end of the tolerance, and it's just not quite as good. So th- this, for me, was unacceptable, that you change something fundamental, like the first point of contact with the air in an aerodynamically controlled device. So obviously, I had the age and experience and confidence to explain to the engineers 
that they'll never do that again. You know, not in my car. They can go and do it somewhere else, go play engineers and scientists with some other car, but never with my car. And so it, that race stood out for me more for asserting my confidence and position as to what I needed as a driver, because engineering is one thing, but there's an individual that has to have the confidence to take the corners flat out. So you've got to get it out of sim world into the real world. And every driver is different. You know, one guy will need a bit more front wing, someone will need a bit less. So I think that in the context of, you know, everybody finding who's going to be staying with the team and, and the people that made those decisions no longer were with the team by the time we got to the next race, because you've got to be cruel to be kind, you know, if you're going to go forward. And I think in getting the fourth place result, which was a big result for the team, I remember Christian Horner hugging me like I'd never been hugged by any man before. I think it took a massive amount of pressure off him in his first race as a team principal. So th it stands out more for that than the race drive itself. Um, and then you, did you, was the other one Monaco? I actually don't really remember how I finished third there. I assume everyone else crashed or fell off or something, and I just kept out, kept out of the barriers. There, there was quite a lot of, um, yeah, I think two of the cars ahead of you caught fire, which is quite, quite dramatic. But, uh, yeah, the more I looked into those, the more I thought maybe, maybe the Australian race was... Was it was a better one? I mean, did, by the time that you you, know, you finish your career with Red Bull, did you think that there was the potential to, for a world-beating team? Did you think, yeah, that's they're they're on their way, or were you surprised when they came out in twenty nine and then twenty ten and 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 finally did it? Yeah, I didn't have a crystal ball to to see how successful the team were going to be, but I only joined and started because I believed that they had the ingredients for growth. And that's what I needed. I needed to feel that that I, uh, you know, my voice and my input would would play a part. Otherwise, you know, what's what is the point? If, if you literally are just logging in and logging out, then there's other businesses you can be involved in. You know, the, to me, motor racing has always been about passion. It's about energy. It's about heart and soul. It's about teamwork. It's about you know, sweating together and celebrating together and. And, and picking yourself up from the floor when things have gone wrong. That, there was a wonderful emotional roller coaster that, that sport particularly and, and business around sport with the deadlines that are involved, that if you're going to live a life, then I think that's a life well lived in that environment because you, you really have that light and shade of, of, of being on, you know, full, full performance and then being able to relax and reflect. So with all of, of the changes that went on from Jaguar to Red Bull, I believed that the ingredients were there to allow us to feel that we could make a change. And I obviously ran out of time in terms of talent, but it was clear that Sebastian was a coming guy. He won the, the 2008 Monza you know, Italian Grand Prix and the Toro Rosso, which was effectively a Red Bull with a slightly more powerful red uh, Ferrari engine in the back. And, uh, and yeah, it's great to see how the team went on to show that it's not the name above the door, it's the people within that brings you success. And a lot of people, a lot of companies, um, hide, not hide, but they'll talk about, oh, head office said this when they're trying to tell people to do. You know, in Red Bull in the early days, people would go, oh, Austria said this. And I went, well, who's Austria? Was it Dietrich who said that? Is, shall I give him a call and ask him? Or was it someone else in Austria who watched the Red Bull who you're too scared to question that you're hiding behind. You know, don't hide behind anyone. You assume responsibility. We, we, you know, there's a captain of a, of, of a plane, and if he's not doing a good enough job, you need to hand over to someone else. Likewise, drivers, we have our time, and then you've got to hand over. 
and I and I think that within companies naming individuals within companies because that's that those individuals come together for a common goal is what makes the company great it's about ownership and responsibility and you know you'll know in your your various roles that there's moments where you have to step up and make a hard decision and there's times where actually your team are more than empowered and more than capable of of making decisions david i mean we've we've been through all of the suggestions on uh, on kev's list but is there anything that you think we've missed any any races from your career that you'd, you'd put forward as, as as one for your greatest races list yeah well probably not from formula one quite frankly but i think uh, macau winning a formula three is something that really stands out uh, because street circuit difficult focus required i was just very single-minded and you know, i was quiet chap when i was younger um quite shy but i was very single-minded and you know focus on detail and you could, there's nothing quite like getting out there and sniffing the tarmac and looking at the barriers and looking at runoff areas and working out if you make a mistake what do you aim for you know if you accept you're going to have a crash then work out what you want to crash into to minimize the damage to the car which barrier can you can you kiss could it might move which barrier has got a big metal post behind it which is not going to move so don't don't mess around with the big metal barrier with the post behind it. But if it's if it's a length of barrier between two posts, you can kiss that, and a, and a metal barrier will move, and a race car will absorb it. And you know, so just that's the those are the things that I really loved about my my early career. And, and Macau stands out because I I had the time to to really you know walk what was a very long circuit and really understand where I could take an advantage. Now you mentioned um, that you had three trophies. At your house rather than so and one of them was from from spain 2000 what, what may i ask what the other two uh, are yeah the uh autosport young driver of the year award 1989 fantastic good to hear uh, and it was given to me i think in probably 2008 when i retired or 2009 because they didn't do you didn't do that trophy that that sort of statuette i don't know what you call it actually but you know the 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 whatever it's called the autosport, the autosport young driver. So the, the, because I was the first winner, um, it, it didn't exist. So it was then given to me at the end of my career. So I have that there. And uh, the podium, third place Monaco uh, for Red Bull is there as well. So those are the trophies. And the only other thing related to racing is the uh, Lorenzo Bandini trophy, which I think Lorenzo Bandini lived in Brizigella and near Emola. And they used to give it out to, they still do. I, I think the last person I remember seeing getting it was Checo or Bottas or something. It's a, it was a beautiful uh, porcelain Ferrari, uh, probably about half a meter long. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. So you wouldn't know it was a trophy. It would just look like I bought a, a nice piece of motor racing artwork. Um, so, that's the, so it's not a trophy, but it was an award or a, a, you know, an up-and-coming young driver thing. And, and that's it. And then I have a few helmets at home, um, a Michael helmet that he gave to me, a, uh, a Kimi helmet, an Alonso helmet, a button helmet, uh, Paul Stewart with a finger on the side of it because Paul and I were teammates in Formula 3000 and we ended up having a little battle and a test in Jerez once where I felt he held me up on my new tyres. And that's where actually the first driver I ever gave the finger to was to Paul Stewart. And... Uh, and we were teammates and, uh, and we're good friends, of course, now and even at the time. And he gave me one of his helmets and painted a finger on the side. And then like Mark Webers and Martin Brundles and all the rest are, are somewhere in London and somewhere in the museum. But um, I think having personal helmets from other drivers when they put little messages is kind of fun. 
there's nothing really to say it's a uh, ex racing driver's household and um, david i wonder if we might um we might bring this podcast to a conclusion by just just having a little a little brief chat about about the current state of formula one in 2020 because it's been quite a quite a heavy week of news sort of that you know the the last week or so what's gone on with the new rules that have been announced ahead of you know racing hopefully starting in a, or, or it should be starting we've got the green light from the austrian government next uh, next month for the red bull ring and um, what, what 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 have you made of the changes that's going to happen in the future i mean the, the sort of the aero handicap stuff really really stands out to me personally when going through and analyzing it and um, you know what are they, is this sort of the right sort of steps that formula one is doing Formula One has always been a defined set of regulations of which everyone then has the opportunity to interpret and to deploy whatever assets they have uh, at their disposal. Some arguably have bigger brain power, but smaller budgets. Some clearly have bigger budgets. And if they can link that into having a lot of brain power as well, because just because you have more people doesn't necessarily mean that's going to give you success. I think Toyota were a great example of that, you know, built a factory in in Germany with all the employment restrictions and then thought they could compete with the British teams where, you know, it just, it was clearly on high, you know, obviously hindsight gives us, locks us in, but it was clear that was never going to work when, when, when the home of racing is, is somewhere else. But I am a little bit concerned about anything that handicaps success because Formula One for me, again, it, the name above the door doesn't guarantee success. If it did, the biggest name in Formula One is Ferrari and they, they should be winning every few years they should win a championship on that basis and they haven't. So it's not always about the name above the door. It's not always about resource. It's about having a, a, a talented group of individuals who will come together as a team to create that magic that, that sees opportunities and, and creates those opportunities. So I would always prefer without any of the pressure of having to raise the money or design a racing car, as a commentator pundit today, I would always prefer a very clearly set, defined set of rules and people compete to that. Now, if that's with a budget cap, fine. I still think that if you look at Formula 2, there's still better teams for whatever reason than other teams historically, and they've all got the same cars, essentially. And some might have half a million more or half a million less, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but it's clearly what defines success in other forms of racing isn't designing your own chassis and your own engine and all of those other things. But Formula One has always been the pinnacle and, and, and you had to have the intellectual property of the majority of the car. I, I see no harm in having standardized steering wheels or standardized pedal boxes, standardized seat belts, standardized, all the things that aren't actually giving you let's say, outright performance. I guess you could argue, like I said earlier, about buttons and releases, you know, it can make a difference. And then the, 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 the wetted surfaces, you know, the aero surfaces and, and, and engines and things like that should be, uh, should be open to development, in my mind, because that's what aids development. And if we make it to IndyCar-like, then IndyCar doesn't have the same level of global audience because it doesn't, it's not the space race. You know, everyone got super excited about SpaceX because it's still magical developing something that sends humans into outer space. So I think there has to be that little bit of magic, that little bit of, my goodness, how did they do that in Formula One? It can't just be standard budget, standard cars. I know it's not, the rules aren't as extreme as that. But if we get, if we become too standard, the brand equity of Formula One will carry that for, such, for a period of time but the minute there's something faster, then Formula One will lose its appeal because the public want to see the fastest form of closed circuit racing. So I guess I've not answered it in, in my typical fashion of going around in circles. 
Formula One has to remain the fastest form of closed circuit racing, and it has to be by some margin. It's got to be, you know, in my mind, eight to 10 seconds quicker than Formula Two. If it's five seconds quicker than Formula Two, it's not a big enough gap for that extra 120 million you're spending over what a Formula Two car budget is. You know what I mean? You're, if you only spend 145 million, not including drivers and uh, key uh, personnel, what are the public getting for that? You know, it can't, it, there has to be something special. There has to be something SpaceX-y. There's, there's got to be significantly quicker to make people go, whoa, that was a Formula One car. But if you go, well, it's, uh, we know that's Formula One because it's Ferrari and, it, and that's a Formula Two, it's painted red, it could be the same, then I think it, we, we lose something from Formula One. What if that comes at the expense of action and overtaking and, and the other things that the fans like? Because we've sort of seen, with, I mean, even the current cars uh, should really break a lot of lap records this year because of the way that they've been engineered. Um, but there could be a risk that, like, like that we were talking in Melbourne before the race uh, got, got cancelled, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Daniel Ricciardo, people like that were saying... Um, this race might not have a lot of overtaking because of the way the cars have just been developed so far now. So they might even have to change the track potentially. We'll see if that comes back into the news or whatever. So yeah, is is the trade-off the, the, the real tough thing that Formula One still hasn't cracked? I, I don't think that, and again, getting into an area where an engineer would very quickly come on and, and, and close me down on this, but I'm pretty confident if you had 10 engineers, you would get 10 different opinions as well. So have we really explored... The, the perfect uh, Grand Prix car that allows for the speed, but allows them to run closely together. I don't see how any, any evidence from the history of uh, motor racing of reducing wing size is going to just make them run closer together because it's difficult to run close in a Formula 3 car, never mind anything with a wing, you, you know, on the top surface is, is difficult to, you lose to downforce. So have we, have, uh, you know, have we missed an opportunity with a Gordon Murray-esque fan car have we with the the old skirted cars uh, you know I, I i don't know it's, it's a question have we really exploited all of the other ways now they say they've run two cars in the wind tunnel to make them easier to run closer together i don't doubt that those results are better but until you get around the fact that the car behind is going to be in a suboptimal position if you've got two identical cars two ferraris and the one behind's running in dirty air losing downforce, why should it go as quick as the one in front? <laughs> you, know, you know, you get a slipstream, of course, but if you're running on a very technical racetrack, how do you ever make the car following have more downforce? So allowing them to run closer, I guess you could say, well, then the, there is the chance you can maybe dive down the inside. But I'm trying to think which formula gives us really, really good wheel-to-wheel you know, wheel -wheel racing that's got wings on it. Well, form, Formula E does do it that. Generate any downforce. It's almost a spec formula. That one of the big one of the big German uh, uh, companies that came in last last year was very keen to point out this is only twenty percent of what we do. Eighty percent is what everybody else has. Yeah, well, from the E car, and please correct me when by checking this for someone, but I'm pretty sure the wings on it go some way to neutralise the lift. Uh, does it actually generate as any downforce? You know, it's got a big venturi. Yeah, so certainly not uh, at, at the front, but yeah, you're the, the, right. All of the downforce is done by the venturi at the back. So, you know, I think Formula E has really, you know, the, yes, it's good racing and I enjoy that. I agree with you. Good, good racing. I love to see a good race. But then that's a different subject, isn't it? You know, what, what is Formula One? If, if, do, do the millions of people who watch Formula, uh, Formula One, do they watch Formula E? Why not? If the racing's better. So I think we need to find, you know, Formula E style racing, but with 
Formula One style tech interest and belief that it's the pinnacle. Because if it's if, if it's not the pinnacle, people will think, well, we'll go and do something else. I, I think that's fair. I think the closest thing to an answer I can give you, David, is I think there was a period perhaps in the 90s with the uh, Indy cars, which had quite a lot of downforce, um, but they had more underground, you know, more, more ground effects. So they could get a bit closer, quite big tyres. And of course, you could, there was turbo boost and all the rest of it. So I think there's probably enough dials that you could play with basically turn the overbody downforce down and other things up, you know, a bit more power perhaps and take a bit of the grip and still, and maybe still, still have something that was the pinnacle, but with overtaking was, was a bit easier. I also wonder whether the cars could maybe are just too massive. I'm not suggesting we should go back to narrow cars because I didn't like those. And I think the current cars look really mega, but I wonder if they could just overall be a, a fraction smaller. If you put a, a current car against one 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, F1 cars have just been getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And, and clearly, as they've become... It, the thing is, it's all relative, isn't it? The, the Formula 1 cars of 20 years ago would be much slower than an F2 car. So you can't just go back to that and leave F2 as it is. It, Formula 1 still has to be the fastest. Otherwise, there's no aspiration to be in that formula. But there's... The business of Formula 1, the business of sport, is such that there's enough money in the sport that... You know, forget any other form of motor racing. If they didn't exist, then Liberty could standardize, or Formula One could standardize the cars, even they distribute all the money, make great racing. It wouldn't, you know, you'd Haswin would win one race, and Alfa Tori, and then Ferrari would win, and Mercedes, or the best team would, would ever would win. But um, it would, that is a step change away from how the sport has evolved. So you have to ask the question is the entertainment side? the dominant factor and probably the answer is yes in terms of revenue because if you're not entertaining you might lose revenue in the future and therefore we should go down that route if the answer is not that's the most dominant factor and and the fans are still tuning in because it's somehow you know i watched the spacex launch and, and not because i watch every launch of any any um, rocket, but it just, it was publicized as something new and exciting. And therefore I was curious and it was something to, to watch out. I'll probably not watch the next one, but you know, there has to be something that makes us want to watch Formula One for it to maintain that level of, of interest. And maybe it is uh, one car turning up with a fan on it and another car turning up with a jetpack. I, I, I'm just being a bit extreme, but we've got to be careful that in standardizing so much and reverse gridding, that is that is that actually is that fair that a team could come in two years in the sport and they could be winning Grand Prix because they've got reverse grid in Monaco and no one can overtake them? Yeah, it has to be a meritocracy, doesn't it? Still, I mean, lots so many other parts of the sport. I used to cover British touring cars, um, uh, GT racing. The same has gone down this sort of balance of performance route. I know that we're not quite suggesting that for F1, but you get to the point where I remember speaking to an engineer and went, "Well, we've done this in the." We've done this design. We reckon it's going to find us a tenth or two per lap, but we're not going to bother spending the money to make it because if we do it, the next round will be turned down on boost. You, you'd, so it's actively discouraging people from pushing the envelope. So, no, I completely agree. We've got to do find a way of ticking all the boxes without discouraging engineers to basically make space vehicles that go around the circuit. Yeah. What, what is absolutely clear... We, we could have all um, warranted opinions and views on this and we, we start going out to everyone else and they will all have relevant and, and, and good, good reason and opinion. So um, I guess 
the governing body in Formula One have to have a very clear des- design on what Formula One should be. You know, what, what should it be? And, and, what, and then what, when you know what it should be, then I think then it becomes a lot clearer as to what the rules are. And you either accept that challenge or not. If it can be as simple, and I, I'm not being disrespectful to Formula 2 teams because I know how difficult it is to win in smaller teams, but if it can be as simple as, as literally just kind of specking buying in another car and operating it and getting podiums and stuff like that, then it almost devalues all the, 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 the entrepreneurial spirit and the engineering spirit of all those that have built the foundations of Formula 1 today. And, and maybe you know, everything has its time. Maybe the old spirit of Formula 1 has had its time. And the new era of Formula One has to be something different. You know what I'm saying? It, it, there's, no, there's no one clear answer, is there? It's, it's quite a complex subject. But it, it, somehow we, we find it fascinating. And those who don't get Formula One will never get it. No, no. Well, well this is, I, I opened a, a column that I wrote uh, the other day is that even without racing, Formula One can still produce just the best storylines, just whether it's talking about what the cars should be or what, where, where drivers are going to race, what are things like that. So, yes, yeah, so I think uh, we're all very much looking forward to next month when, when real racing does return. And we've got we've got even more to talk about, which will be very good. But, yeah, let's uh, let's bring this podcast uh, to a close now. Uh, Kev, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. And David, particularly, thank you very much for joining us. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear all your memories and your thoughts and, and everything. It's just been fantastic. So thank you for coming on the Autosport podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again to David and Kev for that brilliant discussion. And thanks to you for listening. Tell us what you think of our assessment of David Coulthard's greatest races on our social media channels using the handle at Autosport. And if you like listening to our podcast, we'd love you to share it with someone else who'd enjoy it. Finally, do check out all of our news stories and features on autosport.com and motorsport.com this week. And thanks to our producer, Martin Lee, for editing this episode. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.